Welcome back to the Keep Your Rundown. This week, we talk about how politics plays into building and infrastructure projects with Ben, and then we talk to Nikolai about his reporting on Holly Ridge. Stick around. The North Carolina Department of Transportation says that they use a nonpartisan rubric to determine which projects around the state get to go first and how much money they get. But if it's really that way, then why is Wilmington and surrounding counties going to suffer traffic pandemonium for the next six months? The Cape Fear Memorial Bridge project has been in talks for a long time before repairs were agreed upon. Ben joins us now to talk about some context and what we plan on looking into next year. Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. I'm here with Ben Shockman. Hi, Cammy. Our new Morning Edition host for the next few days. That's true. That's are, true. Are you, are you okay? I wouldn't say I'm a shell of a man. You're just sleepy. I'm a little sleepy. Okay. Well, right. kudos to Ken Campbell who does this on the regular. Yes. So we're going to be talking about the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge we today. Are. Yeah. Which, by the way, building is supposed to start January 28th. Just want to get that out of the way so people don't think it's the first week. Yeah. So January 11th, they're going to start doing some uh, construction. And um, between it'll be overnight from 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. And it'll be you'll still be able to go both ways on the bridge. Mm -hmm. But starting right now, this is the timeline. This is subject to change. But right now we're looking at January 28th. Both lanes heading into Wilmington will be closed. So you can still travel from Wilmington into Brunswick County headed towards Belleville and Leland. But you will not be able to take the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge uh, from Brunswick County across the Cape River into Wilmington for months, for like several months. Get out of here. Get out of here. Okay, so I want to give a, a quick backstory here. And this is what we're going to be looking at next month. So we all know uh, through some reporting that you and Kelly Kinoyer did mm -hmm. about the city kind of found out about this in the middle of November. Uh, there was some scrambling. I'm not sure to be mean, but it, it really did look like scrambling to figure out what they were going to do because it seems like the Division Three engineers at the North Carolina Department of Transportation kind of just now figured out that the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge can't be converted into a two-lane bridge that goes in both directions. Yes. So in the emails that Kelly and I, well, that Kelly found in the terminal and sent um, on over, a representative with Novant was basically asking, hey, is we're just wondering though, is there any reason why traffic on the bridge is not going to be one lane, but both directions. Right, and Novant would care because they have to send uh, ambulances. Yes, and they also have many employees. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, the Division Three engineers basically said, well, we wanted it to be like that, but then we realized with safety concerns, that's just not going to work. And safety concerns basically means like 18-wheelers uh, flapping into cars. Yes, exactly. Slapping them off the bridge. <laughs> So that would be bad. Yes. So that's why we're facing the current traffic apocalypse that we're <laughs> facing. But the bigger picture around this is that the Kiefer Memorial Bridge is like 50 plus years old. Um, oh. It is not ready to fall into the river, but it is getting to the end of its functional lifespan, which means repairs are more and more intensive every year, more and more expensive every year. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty serious round of repairs where they're really like replacing a lot of actual metal and, and components on the bridge. And the, the question is, like, how has this been allowed to go on for so long? As in the lack of this large repair. Yeah, I mean, 
we it seems like the can we've had many people email us and and call in and say it feels like this has been kicked down the road for a long time. Mm. Now this is the Department of Transportation. This is NCDOT's job. They own and they own and operate the bridge. Okay. So so this is a them problem. It's it's yes, but it's also been suggested that you know local leaders have some sway. Um, you know. Oh. Not just like our state reps, like uh, State Senator Michael Lee, who's sat on various committees involved with transportation and funding transportation, but also, you know, mayors and county commissioners, they have a bully pulpit, bully pulpit. You know, they can they can put pressure on people publicly mm-hmm. and say, you know, Governor, you know, Governor, Governor Purdue, Governor McCrory, Governor Cooper, this needs to get done. Our bridge is old. Our bridge is old, and you know you're putting people at risk. You're putting the economy at risk. You're putting people's like just sanity at risk. So, one of the things I remember learning when we were doing, when you and I were talking about the context of this, the conversation about the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge has been a thing for a long time. It's been a thing for a long time. Um, now there's a, a bunch of different factors. One is that. It's been suggested that it's it's pretty much the Coast Guard that is driving the need for the bridge to be so tall. The current Cape Fear Memorial Bridge, uh, if you've ever seen it, that middle section actually lifts up. Um, so the two towers actually like pull the middle section of the bridge up. What are those? What is that kind of bridge called again? It's a, not a drawbridge. I guess it's it? a lift bridge. Okay, so it does move. Yeah, and I've heard apocryphally. Um, that right when the bridge first opened, uh, someone had just committed a bank robbery and was headed to Brunswick County and didn't realize that this was happening <laughs> and drove straight into the Cape Fear Memorial River. Uh, so there's like an old-timey car down there with some loot in the trunk, allegedly. <laughs> and it, the traffic needs of our region are serious enough that there has been discussion of another bridge. So if you're playing along at home, We've got the Isabel Holmes Bridge, yes, which goes right from the north side of downtown Wilmington, just just north of the Live Oak Amphitheater. We've got the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge, which, uh, you know, is sort of the iconic postcard bridge of Wilmington. It's an old old timey green, you know, metallic looking bridge. If you go much forth, further north, there's the I-140 Bridge near the northern near the Pender County New Hanover County line. Oh, okay, yes, yes. And so if you basically if you take uh, I-40 about six miles north of Wilmington and make a left and head west on I-40, it'll take you to Navassa and that sort of northern part of Brunswick County. So there's another bridge up there. So there are currently three bridges in New Hanover County. Um, there's been discussion of a fourth and a fifth bridge. Um, the fourth bridge has been suggested several times. I think the first time it was called the Cape Fear Skyway. Uh, this bridge has been brought up and killed and brought up and killed. The most recent round happened before the pandemic. And there was a lot of pushback, actually, on the Brunswick County side about where this bridge was going to land and, and where, like, all the connecting ramps was going to cut through. Yeah. At one point, there was some pushback from the Wilmington side because just based on the financial models, it looked like the cheapest way, and the government likes to build things, you know, you build the best thing you can for the least money. That's, yes. You know. It looked like just the financial calculus was going to push this new bridge through downtown Wilmington, through historic districts in the, in southern really? the south side of Wilmington. So there was a lot of pushback against that. Basically, no one was happy. There's nowhere you can put that bridge that's going to make anyone er- happy. everyone happy for a low amount of money. And we're, the the difference is here. We're talking about like the difference between like a quarter million dollars and three quarters of a of a billion dollars. So 250 million dollars or 750 million dollars. 
So oh where God. you, because the further down you put, the further down the Cape Fear River you put the bridge, the wider the river is. Oh, I see. And the more bridge you have to build. So there's been a couple of attempts to build a fourth bridge, and this would be, this has almost always been suggested as a toll bridge because it is a new bridge. And so one of the things that's part of this conversation is that if you build new bridges or new roadways, um, they're allowed to be tolled. But it's generally understood that if you replace a roadway or improve a roadway or, or replace a bridge, that's not supposed to be told if the original bridge wasn't told. Okay. So put a pin in that because we're going to get back to the toll issue. I was going to say. Okay, okay, but there's also a fifth bridge out there floating around, and yeah. that is because of what's called rail realignment, which would, instead of CSX trains coming down uh, towards southeastern North Carolina, coming across the Cape Fear River north of Wilmington, making a big sort of sideways horseshoe loop around the city of Wilmington, causing traffic delays, and going to the port of Wilmington, this would bring it down the Brunswick County side of the river and then cut over just north of the port. Oh, I see. But so this, it's like an L shape? Yes. But this would also have to be a very tall bridge um, because the Coast Guard would need to go under it. Um, and it would just be for rail. There's not currently really that I've seen any serious plans to combine a rail realignment bridge with another bridge over the Cape Fear River, either a replacement for the Cape Fear Memorial or that fourth Cape Fear Skyway Bridge. Okay. I've seen one or two suggestions, but the, the cost is obviously a lot higher. Okay, so that's that. these are all the bridges that we've talked about. <laughs> I have a bone to pick with the Coast Guard. Yeah, so even if we didn't do that, even if we didn't make the tallest bridge we could, even if we don't talk about a rail bridge, it still seems like it's gone a long time without just replacing the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge. And you add to that frustration the suggestion that came out, I believe it was last year, that this be a toll bridge. Yes, I was going to say, because you just said that the understanding is if the bridge was not a toll bridge, don't make it a toll bridge. And many, uh, I mean, this, this does not seem to be a partisan issue. You know, I, I've heard outspoken city councilmen, uh, county commissioners um, all say they they are, first of all, no, they don't want. <laughs> yes. Uh, Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho put it most succinctly. I called him after the announcement that this toll bridge was being proposed and said, is this something he would support? And he said, hell no. Okay, so, so there you go. Thank you. I guess the DOT's argument is that because the current bridge is four lanes and the new bridge would be, I think, six lanes with like pedestrian pathways. Oh, I see. That it's not an apples to apples replacement. It's enough of an upgrade that they can justify saying this is basically new infrastructure so we can toll it. Okay. Now, okay. I've, so I've heard that the idea for the toll bridge actually came out of the governor's office, uh, Governor Roy Cooper's office. Uh, we haven't been able to confirm that, but I've heard from a couple people. But basically, you know, anyone's allowed to come forward and propose something. Uh, in this case, it's a private company that does this up and down the eastern coast. Yeah. Um, people really, really, really don't like that idea. It is one way it could get paid for. But the question people have been asking is, where's the political will to do this without a toll? Um, why have local officials not put pressure on Raleigh, on the General Assembly, mm. on the DOT to do this? The DOT claims it has its a fairly like objective rubric-based system where they score things. So they're saying like, look, it's depoliticized. Um, you know, we basically we look at need and cost, and then we kind of come up with a ranking number. And isn't isn't this bridge not very high on their priority list? It's very low on their priority list. Okay. <laughs> yeah, which is also frustrating people, and it's like, um, you know, so 
there's been other bridges that people have pointed to that seem like they serve fewer people that have been replaced before the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge. So this is all the stuff we want to unpack. We want to unpack when when is the first time people thought, hey, we're really going to have to replace this? Because obviously, like, in the 60s and 70s, yeah, beautiful brand new bridge. Yeah. Life is good. Why would you replace it? Um, and it probably coincides with the population explosion in Wilmington mm. around the time that I-40 connected Wilmington to the rest of the state for more, you know, more convenient. It used to be very difficult to get to Wilmington. I mean, Kelly and I's reporting showed like about 40,000 vehicles every single day yeah. over that single bridge. And it's going to go up and up and up. Mm. Uh, the projections for the next 10 years are, are just more every year. And I, one of the things the DOT has said is that they're actually getting more traffic, um, freight traffic, over that bridge going to the port, which, you know, an 18-wheeler puts more wear and tear on a bridge than, like, a Nissan Sentra. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no offense, Nissan Sentra, but, like... You're not as strong. You just don't hit as hard. So, yeah, we want to know, you know, what is the deep backstory? Like, when was the first inkling that, like, hey, we should start coming up with a plan? And then to what extent is there really an ability for political will to move the needle. We want to look at, you know, sort of mm-hmm. comparable cases where has anyone ever like bullied their way up the list or is this really kind of strictly an abacus that NCOD just, <laughs> you know, moves the numbers around and it is what it is. And then the last question is how how does a replacement Cape Fear Memorial Bridge fit into this wacky world where we also apparently need a bunch of other new bridges? <laughs> yes. And so it's it's a big complicated kind of messy story. And because there's so many people involved, there's a General Assembly, which provides funding. There's DOT, which ranks projects and sort of, ha- and, and, you know, decides who, what goes where. And then there's local leaders who, at least in theory, have some ability to put political pressure on people. There's a lot of crossed Spider-Man finger pointing. <laughs> yes. So we want to unpack all that and, and sort of lay it out as cleanly as we can. This is the story of Wilmington and our bridge needs. <laughs> And if that sounds wildly confusing, it is wildly confusing. It is. Well, I'm looking forward to more reporting on this in the new year. I think it's kind of crazy that Monday will be New Year's Day. Bonkers. Cammy's end of year alarm just went off. <laughs> it is the end of the year. It's the end of the year. Ben Shockman, thank you for being on the show with me this week. Happy to do it. The town of Holly Ridge, just about an hour north of Wilmington, has been dealing with a mold crisis in a USDA-financed apartment complex, also known as the Holly Plaza Apartments. My colleague, Nikolai, broke this story and has been covering the saga since October. He joins us now to give us some inside baseball on how he did it and what it was like. Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. I'm here with Nikolai Mather, the elusive Nikolai. Oh my god, I forgot about that. What's up? I'm in my corporeal form now. You are, and you're also finally on the show (laughs) again. Okay, so we're here because I want to talk to you about your latest reporting on Holly Ridge. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for you to say something. Yeah. Okay. Um, So first, can you tell us how you actually came about this story? Yeah, so... It was basically Sandy Ippolito, who is a mother of two who lives in Holly Plaza Apartments, reached out to both me and Ben through Facebook and email. Um, I want to say like mid-October or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
And she specifically like Facebook messaged Ben. He got to back to her like right away, um, asked me to go out the next day to cover a town meeting in Holly Ridge. Oh, so there was a meeting the day right after. Right after, yeah. Um, it was very surreal in a lot of ways, mostly because it was like an early morning meeting. It was like at 7.45. Oh my God. I can't do journalism wait, wait, wait. at that hour. How, how far away is Holly Ridge? Holly Ridge is an hour from here. So Jackson, and that's Jacksonville area. Jacksonville area. It's about okay. 30 minutes south of Jacksonville. But like, yeah, it's like right next to Surf City. OK, Um, it was surreal for that reason. But also because like I broke in a couple stories like this before, you know, it's part of covering rural affairs. Like typically there's just not enough reporters to go around in these places. But I was really like shocked to see that I was the only reporter there. Like I remember like this one lady coming up to me who was with the town and was like, excuse me, what are you here for? As I was like setting up my recorder. Oh gosh. And I was like, I'm a reporter. And she was like, we don't usually get reporters here. Um, I don't know the pro like the protocols. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah, I was like, and that's been my experience with Holly Plaza too. Like WECT has done great coverage. Jacksonville Daily News has also done some coverage. Um, but most of the time at these town meetings, I am the only reporter. Would you consider Holly Ridge to be a small town? I would say so. It's only about 5,000 people. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, just to quickly refresh our listeners, the issue in Holly Ridge was about the Holly Plaza apartments. There was mold in them. Yes. Correct. Okay. So did Ben Kelly's reporting on our WHA mold crisis here in New Hanover County kind of guide you or help you out in any way? I would say yes and no. Um, when I was talking to the tenants of Holly Plaza, a lot of them were telling me like, you know, in the course of my like personal research on mold, like I went and found this other article on WHQR about WHA, like, you know, what happened there? How are the tenants doing now? Did they get any assistance from the federal government? Mm. Um, and Ben and Kelly, as always, have been like huge resources in all of my reporting. They've done a lot of work helping me get connected with different federal agencies. They've done a lot of help like with just understanding mold, understanding mm. how fraught it is like as a scientific subject, you know? But at the same time, like WHA was mostly, from my understanding, um, like kind of a local thing, you know? They yes. relied on help from state agencies, local agencies, that sort of thing. The federal government is very, very involved in Holly Ridge right now. You know, I've been like keeping up lines of communication with HUD, with USDA, like with congressional reps. It's it's cuckoo bananas. Okay, um, we'll get to that yeah, toward the end of our... <laughs> no, you're good. We'll get to that um, toward the end of our segment. But mm -hmm. okay, so one question that I've personally had after reading your reporting was that the town of Holly Plaza basically said we're going to abandon repairs on these apartments, basically not do mold remediation because it costs too much. Mm -hmm. Why was the town able to say that? Did they own these apartments or... So that's short answer. Yes. Okay. Um, the town does own these apartments, but it took out a loan from the USDA to finance them. That loan oh. is valued now at about $700,000. Okay. Yeah. And that's an interesting point that you bring up too, because um, one thing that I haven't really been able to cover, which I've wanted to, but I've been flying at the seat of my pants, is like the valuation of the property. Mm. Um, during the meeting on November 21st, when they announced that they would be abandoning repairs, they said that the cost of repairs would far out, like, would exceed the like price on the property. Okay. They Got quoted it. like repairing the HVAC units is like something like $864,000 and then mm. Like, but then what they did is they compared that to the tax value of the property, 
which is like about I want to say like nine hundred eighty thousand dollars. Don't oh. actually like a, around like just shy of like one million dollars, which. I don't know, is a strange figure to quote, I think. I've talked to a lot of people who have said, like, why didn't they hire an appraiser? Like, that doesn't seem oh. like the correct value. So, oh, so they didn't hire an appraiser. Uh, I have not heard any information suggesting that, no. Okay. I've talked to the town a little bit about that, and I was like, why did you give the tax value? And they're like, that's the figure that was available. But if they hired an appraiser, then that would have gotten them a much higher value. Yeah. Therefore, you see what I mean? But also... Like I said, it's a really complicated situation. Um, it's just a million different agencies, a million different people and officials throwing facts at you that are all conflicting with one another. So you mentioned something about housing vouchers, the federal government. So can you just quickly explain to our listeners what these housing vouchers that the tenants were given? Um, in my opinion, they're a godsend. But uh, <laughs> I would also say, so they're available to a very, very small niche of people. Number one, it has to be tenants who are at a USDA financed property. Okay. Number two, for one reason or another, that loan needs to be like having some issues. Like, for example, if your property is foreclosed on and your housing is kind of put in jeopardy because of that, you're eligible for these vouchers. Okay. Um, number three is you have to meet income eligibility, which means like in this instance, I think you have to make, no, I know, you have to make 80% or less than the median area income. So okay. once okay. you once you meet those requirements, you're able to use these vouchers, which are awesome. They allow you to live at basically any privately owned apartment in the United States. Wow. Um, provided that it's like lower than market value. Yeah. Like I, I think like in Holly Ridge, it's like 1400 for a one bedroom apartment. Okay. Um, so they pay like quite a bit, like a good chunk of money to cover rent for these tenants. And it allows these tenants to pay the same amount of rent that they are initially paying at Holly Plaza. Huh, so there's okay. not really any major change in how much they have to contribute towards rent. There might still be some issues with obviously moving expenses and the like, but it does allow them to live comfortably. Um, Was there any indication previous to your reporting that the federal government or these federal agencies were going to get involved. I guess basically what I'm asking is, were tenants given these, um, were given these vouchers because of reporting that was on the issue? God, it's it's hard to say just because they came in like so early when the story was in mm. development. Um, what I will say is like a lot of people have told me that my reporting has made a difference, which is very sweet. And I think it's true that having the weight of an organization like NPR, like WHQR behind you mm. has helped us get more eyeballs on these stories. However, the tenants are the ones who made this a story. They're mm -hmm. the ones who have been advocating tire tirelessly for themselves and their neighbors throughout this whole affair. Like, and they're doing this on top of, you know, managing disabilities, managing healthcare issues, taking care of their kids, working multiple jobs and finding housing, trying to get like stable housing for everybody. Because you know, many of them are currently in a hotel. Most right? of them are in the hotel right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they've still on top of like all of these responsibilities and all these struggles they already have as low income people. They've still found time to go to town meetings, to organize resources for people and to advocate for themselves. So I think honestly, like whether we were there or not, they would have secured this because they are just that they are that much of a force of nature and they just totally refuse to back down. I am just astonished every day by the power that they have, the solidarity that they have mm -hmm. with one another. Well, it sounds like you're really, you know, what's the word? Inflamed, passioned? What is what what would you say? 
inflated with energy. (laughs) Energized, maybe. I mean, it sounds like you're super, you know, invested and interested in this issue. What was what was it like reporting this story? Um, cuckoo bananas. Was it really? (laughs) Well, I mean, I remember you coming into the office and like one day you were sad because you were talking to some tenants and, Mm -hmm. you know, they were basically giving you very intimate details about their lives and what they'd been like living in those mold infested apartments. Mm -hmm. And then there were other days where you were upset because people weren't answering your PRR request. Like what was it like reporting this story? It is, it has been flying by the seat of my pants. And it's also been, I think this is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my very nascent journalism career. Not only because like I have 10 million different sets of facts flying at me every moment, like, Mm. you know, the town's saying this thing, the attorneys are saying this thing, like HUD is saying something completely different. You know, not only are the facts really hard to um, verify Mm. and like figure out, but the stakes are so high too. You know, I've been told many, many times by the tenants at Holly Plaza that they take WHQR as gospel. Like if it's printed or if it's aired, on whqr.org, then they are listening to it and they will use that to help make their decisions moving forward. What that means though, is if I print something that HUD later contradicts or USDA later says is wrong, then not only would that make these tenants misinformed, but it could land them on the streets. Mm. So it's very, very high stakes. And I take this work really, really seriously. Um, but again, I'm the only one covering this, so it's really hard to like yeah. <laughs> like get info from secondary sources or like talk to other reporters about this. Like it's literally basically just me going around being like, what do you think? What do you say? Like and trying to discern the facts from that pile of information. So this story actually isn't over. Um, I saw something pop up from ECT and you're actually working on something now. Um, are there any updates in this in this story? What's going on? The update right now is Holly Ridge has been, so the town of Holly Ridge has been covering the hotel stays for all residents since October. Okay. Um, since October 27th. And initially they're going to ask residents to leave the hotel on January 1st. They're going to stop covering their hotel stays. But given that the USDA voucher process could take a couple weeks up to a couple months. So The town of Holly Ridge voted to extend the hotel stay in Jacksonville by about two weeks, um, which hopefully will allow residents a little more wiggle room as they figure out their options with these housing vouchers. Typically, the application process for the vouchers, like from getting the voucher to moving into an apartment, takes anywhere from 60 to 90 days. Wow. So and they got the news of this like just this month. So obviously, like January 1st was not going to give them enough time to get settled. Yeah. I'm doubtful that January 15th will get them enough time to get settled. But it is it does allow them some more time to get their bearings, especially after the holidays when a lot of agencies were closed. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of other updates we have. Yeah, I mean, we should be hearing more about the lawsuit coming up in January as well. Pendergraph has to file their uh, reply to the suit, I think, like January, end of January is my best guess. Um, And obviously, as more updates come out, like you'll hear it from WHQR first. Well, Nikolai, the elusive Nikolai, thank you for being on the show with me this week. Thank you for having me. I'm going to go back in my Heidi ghost hole now. Coming at you pre-recorded, I'm your host, Camille Mojica. Pontification, pontificating, that apparently is a British word. That is what I shall be doing for this segment, minus the I'm right and you're wrong thing. So, kind of just talking into the ether. First, 
Thank you for supporting WHQR and the work we do here, both as a musical station and a news station. Everyday listeners just like you make this whole operation possible, so thank you, really, for another great year. As a newsroom, HQR won numerous awards for our coverage of the Cape Fear region, and the work has not stopped, nor will it ever. The reporters here, myself included, are committed to being here and shedding light on gaps in the system and holding institutions accountable no matter how big or small. This year has been jam-packed with news, not just locally, but nationally and internationally. And this always brings me back to the point of just how important journalists are. I don't mean to say that we're more special than others by any means, but this job really isn't for everyone. There's a little bit of hardness that's needed to protect your own peace of mind, on top of empathy and grace to understand the views and lives of others, and to keep your cool in public when something makes your blood boil. Journalists are still humans at the end of the day. Just to shed a little bit of light into how our newsroom operates, there are times it's quiet after hard news days, like updates in the Michael Earl Kelly case. Sometimes it's loud and exciting, with adrenaline pumping when a source calls with new information or a wild press release comes into our inboxes. And sometimes there are tears of frustration, sadness, and happiness. Tears are only there because we care. Sometimes we care so deeply it hurts and can be overwhelming. Sometimes something hits close to home, or sometimes something is particularly hard to cover. But the hard parts aside, I've got to say, I have never seen a newsroom operate like ours. There's constant bouncing of ideas, peer editing, picking up the work of others to help out, and general support of one another's work and passions. This place is warm and welcoming and always open to new ideas and possibilities. To keep this short, I'll end it with this final thought. WHQR's newsroom is essential for the community. The work we and our media partners in the region do is invaluable. Local news is not dying here, and with new staff, it's only growing, and it's growing with your support. Thank you for everything, for supporting our work, supporting this podcast, and tuning in every day and letting us keep you company. Have a happy new year, and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Cape Fear Rundown. Check out our show notes for relevant links and titles to the music we use this week. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or just general feedback, feel free to get in touch. You can shoot me an email at cmojica, that's M-O-J-I-C-A, at whqr.org, or you can find me on X at Cami Reports. I'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Camille Mojica, and I'll see you in the new year. <laughs>